Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. This is episode 202, airing on January 11th, 2021. And before I get into the usual stuff, I have to at least acknowledge what happened last week. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, it shouldn't be political. It shouldn't be partisan. Uh, unfortunately, it is. But I think it's safe to say we can all agree that last Wednesday was a truly dark day for the United States. And honestly, just for d democracy in general. Uh, I'm not going to get into it much more than that, but I couldn't just kind of let it slide and not mention it, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it either. I will say, and again, I, you know, I don't want to alienate anybody in the audience because privacy and security are not partisan. They are not political things. They are important to everybody. Privacy is a human right. Uh, we all need security and it's required for democracy and society in general. So Nevertheless, there was an interesting video I saw from Arnold Schwarzenegger that I would recommend you all go check out. Uh, he's a former Republican, obviously a former actor, uh, former governor of California. And he has a rather interesting perspective on this as somebody who was born in Austria and saw what was happening there um, as a kid growing up in post-World War II era. And he, he has some actually very unique perspectives on this. Obviously, he he weighs in on his, on the president, the current president of the United States. And, but you know, even if that is something that you may not agree with him on, listen to the whole thing. Uh, he's got some really interesting perspectives on that. Just go to, um, just go to YouTube and find, uh, if you search on Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm sure the most recent video there is probably this one. Uh, I'll try to put a link to the show notes as well, but that's all I'm going to say. I don't want to, again, I don't want to make this a political show, but I couldn't not mention it. So putting that aside, we've got a wonderful, interview today with Helen Horseman. Alan, she's the COO of Fastmail, uh, a privacy respecting, privacy first email provider, uh, one that I use on a daily basis, among others. I've got many, many email accounts. Uh, but we're going to talk about, not we're, it's not going to be an infomercial, but we're going to talk about email privacy and privacy in general and what it means for most people, how you decide what is the right call for you in terms of privacy, because it's a spectrum. It's not an all or nothing thing. Nothing's 100% secure. Nothing's 100% private. But most of us today uh, <laughs> tend to be way on the other end of that spectrum in both privacy and security. And so my my job, my goal, my mission is to try to get people at least the opportunity to be as private or as secure as they want to be. In particular, you know, get away from the no security, no privacy end of that spectrum to a reasonable level of privacy and security. There's so many things that we can all be doing to get there. Most of them free, uh, most of them simple, and some of them not. But anyway, I'm trying to give you those options. And so we're going to talk, you know, about what that means, how, you know, how you make that call. What what does it mean to be private to you? What How much privacy is required? And what are you giving up when you go full tilt privacy? Uh, there are choices to be made. There are convenience versus security, convenience versus privacy aspects to a lot of these tools and services. Uh, so again, you know, try to pre present you with all the options. And, uh, and just we'll talk about it in general and why privacy is important and how to interpret privacy in your lives. So great first part of interview, a part of a two-part interview. We'll talk about some of that stuff today. Plenty more cool stuff next week in part two. Uh, now, I met Helen uh, at an online conference. It's something I probably never would have even known about had it not been for COVID, let alone attended. And I'm so glad I had a chance to meet her there. I uh, also met another person at that conference, uh, Bea Berger-Lenahan uh, from DuckDuckGo. And so I hope to interview her at some point too. Uh, again, you know, small silver lining to this whole pandemic thing, I guess. <laughs> uh, but really happy to have met these people and really glad I got Helen on the show for an interview. Now, before we get to the interview, I got to fess up to one thing. Uh, as I introduce her, this thing, 
I suppose I could have re-recorded it, but I called it Pobox, her previous company, the one that she started before she uh, went to Fastmail. Uh, and I can't believe it's never occurred to me that it's not Pobox, it's P-O Box, as in post office box. Anyway, I had to self-flagellate there a little bit before we started this interview. <laughs> Uh, and definitely stay tuned after the interview. I've got uh, updates on the really big contest that's still ongoing. You've got one week left, actually less than one week left. Uh, time is running out to enter to win, you know, part of $1,800 worth of prizes and stuff, including a free one-year subscription to Fastmail. And I've got a lot of really other interesting things and important things to tell you about uh, things that are coming out of Pike. So stay tuned after the interview for that. But let's not waste any more time. Let's get to part one of my interview with Helen Horseman-Allen from Fastmail. Helen Horseman-Allen is the Chief Operating Officer at Fastmail, where she provides overall business strategy and product direction for Fastmail and its suite of products. Before Fastmail, she ran her company, Pobox, and email forwarding services for 20 years before Fastmail acquired it in 2015. Helen graduated from the Wharton School of Business and currently serves on several nonprofit boards in the Philadelphia area. Welcome to the show, Helen. Thanks, Carrie. I had the pleasure of meeting you recently. Uh, we were we attended a rather small but informative online privacy conference a couple months ago, um, and that's what I hope to talk about today. And back, of course, email privacy specifically. But before we get into that, um, I know that your background is in entrepreneurship and product design. So you know, maybe tell us a little more about that and yourself, and you know how does that background influence your perspectives on privacy? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for having me here today. So as you said, you know, I got started at, um, at P.O. Box in 1995, which is when I was still an undergraduate at Penn. And in 1995, there was a, like a huge number of people doing all the things that we do today firsthand, right? So you would have to do, if you did market research, you were mostly doing firsthand observation. You were watching people in stores. You were mm, watching yep. people behind, you know, two-way mirrors. You were <laughs> doing actual, like, out loud interviews. Right. I used to be a Nielsen family, oh, right? Oh, and wow. The first time I did that, I did it in a paper notebook. The second time I did that, I wore a pager on my hip that oh, wow. picked up all the signals from all the radio and television that <laughs> I interacted with. And back then, if you participated in that level of market research, you got paid for it, right? Mm. Like, <laughs> so the understanding of customer behavior and customer data has been a, a marketplace for a very long time. But in the past, we recognized that there was some value to that data, and we paid people to acquire it. So <laughs> How quite. You know, that, right. And so that really kind of informs, like, my thinking about a lot of things, right? Like, there is a level of data that people are happy to share with companies that they do business with, right? I participated in uh, user research for The Gap for a very long time because I mm. found it interesting. And I know that they're using the data to improve my shopping experience. But if you think about, right, that level of information versus what most businesses know about us today, it right. is incredibly quaint, right? Yeah. You used to have to target people based on the magazines they read or where they lived. And now people are leaving this trail of data about themselves on the internet. And it's like companies have like a book long dossier, not only on our background, our interests, our demographics, but all the things we're thinking about and doing as we're thinking about and doing them. Yep. And if you think about how that affects what people want to do, right? Like 
if you know everything about somebody, it's a lot easier to persuade them to do what you want to do, which is what this is all about, right? This is not about like necessarily improving products or product design, although sometimes it can be used that way. It's often about moving human behavior, right? Changing what people do based on what you want them to do. So sometimes that's fine, right? Like, if you've ever bought something based on an ad and been really happy with it, right? Like Mm. there's some amount of changing your behavior that you're open to. Uh, It's another thing when the information that they have about you goes past like interests or a new recipe and cross over into things that could be dangerous for people to know about you or things that allow them to target you in ways that are potentially illegal, right? Like if you think about job listings, uh, housing listings, you know, targeting people for those means that some people don't get to see opportunities for jobs for housing. So this is really kind of a place where, for me, privacy isn't an all or nothing experience, right? Like, my goal for myself, and even for my customers, is not to help people create a a black hole where (laughs) they are on the internet, right? It's about taking what people know about you from this multi-page, you know, book length dossier back down to a character sketch, right? Like right. Th- the place where there is some benefit, there is some appeal to having things shown to you or having your uh, attention directed in a particular way versus the, that, that dangerous place. So, you know, it, it, I've been doing this for not forever, but and you've been longer than me, but if, for me, it was Snowden when all this came down is when I really, really started paying attention to these things. And it became much more of a thing that I might be hung up on to things I think that was a, an issue for democracy and the human race. You know, and, you know, and I used to lament, I think, that you know, there was a tendency toward apathy or ignorance when it came to privacy in the U.S. at least. You know, but in recent years, you know, I've kind of believed that it, that we do care more about privacy, and I think that's evolved. Uh, I think people have, you know, things have happened that have caused that evolution. But, you know, we still seem to be, like, fatalistic about it all. You know, perhaps, like, there's nothing that could be done. So, you know, what's your take on the current state of affairs with regard to the public's attitude toward, you know, personal data privacy? And, and you know, how do you think that's evolved in recent years? Yeah, I, so I totally agree. Snowden opened a lot of people's eyes about the state of the privacy of their data um, and what companies are doing with it. And right, I've been doing this for a long time and it has certainly been a relief for me to go from, oh, why would I possibly pay for email to, oh, should I be paying for email, right? So I, I agree that more people think about what is happening and what the impact is. And I also agree with you that many people have a very fatalistic view of it, right? People already know everything there is to know about me. What's the point? Which to me is so funny, right? I've run a technology company for a long time and it's like, well, we can't keep everything about you, right? Like, uh, you know, even information that would be useful, right? Like being able to provide people with a, a longer term history of their own transactions, right? There are some things that our customers would love to know about their own past behavior. And so mm-hmm. we can do it forever, right? Yeah. And so, it, you know, if you started today and said, I would really like to change the amount of information that's uh, known about me on the internet, like that data expires, right? So if you started today, you know, in three months, six months, nine months, a year, like less and less of that information would still be hanging around. I do think that for other people, like it's really a question of 
well, what what's interesting about me anyway? Sure, yeah. Right? And so I think people do, you know, it's it's like if you have nothing to hide, why do you care if anybody's looking? Uh-huh. It's like, that's, yeah. that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible analogy. Right. Um, you know, you think about, you know, the stories about librarians burning their users, uh, check out history. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like lots of information isn't of interest until it is. Right. You know, that being said, I do, of course, use Goodreads and tell people about all the books. I <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so I think, like, for me, a lot of this is about awareness, too, right? Like, if you think about when Fitbits first came out, right, I remember <laughs> when people suddenly were like, oh, wow, right? I had no idea how sedentary I was. And the other amazing thing about them was how quickly you could discover that small changes to your day-to-day behavior would add up, yeah. right? Like, parking your car in a different place, choosing to take a walk at lunchtime, right? Th- those were kind of decisions that maybe you didn't think that much about. And suddenly when you had this tracker, you said, oh, I could make these choices and they would add up very, very quickly. And the reality is most people already have some number of tools in their life that would allow them to protect more of their privacy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Nowadays, most browsers do let you like turn off tracking, turn on some degree of ad blocking. Obviously ad blocking software is out there and has been for a long time. You know, I personally use DuckDuckGo for all my searches. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I have been running a privacy first email provider for a long time. So my email is private. Like there are lots of things that you can do that, you know, are the equivalent of parking your car further away, right? Yeah. The, taking a walk at lunchtime. They're, they're not onerous. They don't require you to move into a, you know, lead lined bunker. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. And, and, and they do add up. Yeah, I mean, in my book, I, I, the analogy I like to make is it's like seatbelts and smoke alarms. I mean, you know, there's things and, you know, unlocking your door when you leave the house. There, there are little things that we've all learned to do as a matter of course that are simple, that are that mostly free, that, you know, raise your level of security enough, you know, right? I mean, it's not – nothing's ever 100% secure. Nothing's ever 100% private. So, it's you know, it's up to each individual to figure out where that line is for them. And, you know, for most people, like you're saying, for most people, it's it's not – nearly as high as it would be for like an Edward Snowden or, or a dissident or, you know, investigative journalist kind of thing. Right. Exactly. If you have shades in your house and you close them when it gets dark, right. Yeah. yeah. You believe in privacy yeah. and you can take steps to help improve yours. Yeah. There's a reason we have t-shirts that say, you know, dance like no one's watching. I mean, you know, there, there are some things like that, right? Yep. Uh, okay, that's it. So you know, we are now, as you know, we're connected twenty four seven. I mean, all our computers and smartphones, uh, even our TVs and doorbells, with you know the Internet of Things. Everything is connected to the Internet, and that's connected all the time. Every each and every one of those devices, you know, not to mention the apps potentially running on those devices, could be and probably are tattling on us. So uh, you know, not to paint a really bleak picture, but given all this and how much control you know can we really have over this data? And, and I think you, I know where you come down on this, but. How would, how valuable are partial measures versus, you know, really 100% privacy? That's a great question. And I will say I definitely think about who has my data. And I've absolutely deleted accounts when companies have been sold. And I no longer am comfortable with yep. the acquiring company holding that data, right? Uh, thinking about all the kinds of information, the services you engage with, the products you put in your home are collecting about you is absolutely worthwhile, right? I do not have always on listening devices in my home. People have different reasons for all of these things, but, you know, like thinking about it and making smart choices is 
something I would encourage everyone to do. But also for me, it's really about thinking about the impact of that data, right? Like some data I'm more concerned about than others. You know, what's the threat vector if people know what the temperature is in my house all the time? Mm. Maybe not that much. What's the threat vector if somebody could take over my thermostat? Okay, well, maybe (laughs) do some damage. But, you know, for me, it's like, what is the place that I'm putting the most information and the information that is the most telling, right? So, again, for me, it's email. And, it, you know, you think about your search history, too, and not to keep coming back to search, but it really does paint a picture of not only, like, who you are, but what you're thinking about, what you're worried about, right? And so those are places where the data is richer and it paints a richer picture, right? You know, email is like a digital paper trail of all of your online interactions, right? Every service you sign up for, every purchase you make, every trip you take, all the people you know, like that's a place that paints a really complete picture of who you are in the past and the present, right? So those to me are kind of the high value targets. I'm sure as time goes on, right, like those high value targets change, you know, and, you know, what people can tell about you from your Google Maps history, right? Like there's there's lots of, of, of sources of data and there's benefits to you sometimes in having them. And there's some benefits to think about in turning off that kind of data tracking. Well, yeah. And I think, what it, you know, what a lot of people, you know, when they think about what this data might mean in kind of in silos, what they would, what I think a lot of people miss is the interactions and synergies between this data, because sometimes it's not a matter of, you know, I know this little thing over here, or I know this thing over there. If I know both of those things, plus five other things, I can really derive an awful lot of information about you and not just you, your entire social graph, right? It's because it, it's in a, it, you're not just giving away your own information. In a lot of these cases, especially when you talk about social media and Facebook and, and email, right? It's a whole, your whole contact mm-hmm. list. You are, you're giving that information away about everybody else too. Absolutely. So email, you know, as we know, it is, is one of the few remaining things today that is like not proprietary. It's been around forever. You know, I, I was using it in college, which is long enough ago. But, it, you know, it's been around for decades, literally. And, you know, the fact that all email services today, you know, have those original standards allows them, all various email services, to interoperate seamlessly. And we don't think about that much. But, I mean, it's not like messaging. Like, if you don't have an iPhone, you know, you can't talk to someone on Android unless it's a dreaded green bubble and not a blue bubble, right? <laughs> so, you know, but anyways, but to, you know, to really appreciate, I think, you know, the privacy challenges in particular with email, because it's been around so long and privacy really wasn't built in from the beginning, I think it's kind of necessary to understand, at least at a high level, like how email works. Like, I don't think a lot of people really think about it. So you've done this for a long time. So maybe walk through like, we always talk about Alice and Bob, right? When we're talking about privacy and security. So Alice is on Gmail and Bob's on Yahoo or Outlook or whatever. They want to send an email to each other. What, what behind the scenes, what is really happening there? And what are the, what are like the weak links? What are the, what are the attack? What's the attack surface, uh, you know, for privacy and security in that regard? Okay. Well, I do have to say, first off, like, thank you for mentioning standards. Um, At FastMail, we do a lot of work in the open standards community. We like open standards really are the backbone of the internet. So many technology companies, period, really survive and thrive because of these open standards. And they are critically important. And, you know, as you say, every company you interact with has email because email is an open standard. So, it, it really is kind of the great equalizing force for 
online companies. But yes, email is a very old technology. Um, the new standard we've been working on, JMAP, is really around uh, retrieval and storage, right? And bringing those modern client tools to email standards. Mm-hmm. But there hasn't been a change in kind of the underlying email protocol in a long, long time. That that's completely unfair. There have been many <laughs> updates to the underlying email protocol over the years, but the standards themselves are very much the same. I actually give a very lengthy talk on how email works to our support team on a somewhat regular mm-hmm. basis. I will try not to give you that entire talk today, <laughs> but I'll give you the quick version of it, yes, yes. which is, right. So Alice is using Gmail, right? She's writing her email and Gmail's consistently saving drafts of that message in her account storage. Typically, we'd refer to this using its protocol name, IMAP, which is where all the email that she sends and receives lives. When she presses send, a copy stays there for her use. Meanwhile, a second copy is going to Bob. It'll travel from Alice's system at Gmail, where it may go through several servers for accepting mail, confirming that it's authenticated, digitally signing it, and then trying to connect to Outlook. Out Outlook, it also might go through several servers where it's checked for spam, filtered, and then finally stored on Bob's own IMAP storage. So two copies of it should live forever. Okay. Like all modern internet traffic, email sent over encrypted connections, but it's almost always sent and stored as plain text through that encrypted tunnel, right? Mm-hmm. That's how we can search it. That's how we can uh, check it for spam, all these things. It's possible using personal encryption like GPG or PGP is another word for it, mm-hmm. uh, to encrypt the content of your message but the envelope information, the from address, the to address, the message headers, those are always sent unencrypted. GBG is a little complicated for uh, average people, which yeah. is why it hasn't gotten a lot of widespread use. In order to really send encrypted email, you need to know, you need to have a secret that you use to decrypt the message. And to have a, a secret that's good, you have to have gotten it in another way, right? If I send you an email with the key in it, it wouldn't be very secure. Right. So, so you know, when you talk about like end-to-end encryption and end-to-end encrypted email, typically it only means that within its own server environment, right? That's how they can pass the keys back and forth. So if you use something and it goes off to another system, either it's being sent in plain text because that's how all email systems work, or it's not really sending it in email at all. It's sending a link and then you've got to use that link to go back and get the copy. That's fine and it's good, but it's also not really what people are expecting from email, right? right? You can't search for the content that way. Like it's not there. You don't have it in your own storage. It's on some other system and that access isn't necessarily always going to be there either. And so where, how many different points along that, along that line? If, let's say if I, I send an email to somebody and I think it's, you know, I think it's kind of private information or something I'm a little bit worried about. And maybe I, I want to uh, delete that message. And I, you know, Alice asked Bob, delete that message. Is it really gone? What, what, what does it mean? Like where are the potential copies of that email possibly stored along the way? Well, hopefully it's really gone. But first off, if you have that kind of information, you should call person on the telephone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. Like the the best advice I could give you is don't send information like that over email. Um, Yeah. So when you send an email, Typically, in in the most common setup for most people nowadays, your system will store a copy of the message in the sent folder, which is in the same place as all your incoming mail, effectively. So your email provider has a mail storage system. You have an account on it. You have different folders. Your message lives there. When you send it, ideally, it's going to go from your SMTP server, maybe to another system on your provider side called it uh, MX server, which will try and send it out to your recipients, also MX server. 
which will then process it, maybe with another step, and then put it on their storage server. So in between the two storage servers, your mail could be touched by mm. two, four, seven different systems. Wow. Those systems typically are not going to ever store a copy of your mail. And in fact, if mail were to build up on any of those systems, it would be seen as a really big problem, right? Mm. Like alarm bells would go off, you know, people would be very worried, right? Mail is not supposed to stop in any of those places. So if- Because it's a storage problem or a, or a data liability, like legal problem or both? Because they are processing servers, not storage mm. servers. And so if mail starts to build up there, it's an indicator that the system's running too slow or something is failing, gotcha. right? So you want to be sure those things are clearing very, very quickly. And if they're not clearing very, very quickly, that's an issue. Um, right. But but really, it is a liability issue. So you say to yourself, how much, how many servers do we need to process mail? If any one of them goes down, how much mail could be lost, mm. right? If the number of messages any system is holding is very small, then the answer is low. If the number of messages any system is holding is high, then the risk of an important message being on any one of those systems goes up. Storage systems have um, much greater redundancy levels, right? Because that's where mail is supposed to live. Mm. So you have you know, multiple copies on multiple different pieces of hardware. Hardware, you know, everything in the world can fail. A system can fail, a hard drive can fail, you know, a network connection can fail. So the question is really balancing like speed, effectiveness, and and risk of of losing things. Okay. All right. Does that answer your question? That's a very lengthy answer. I, <laughs> I could well, boil it down to be shorter. Yeah, that's full. The, the full one was at least forty minutes, so that, that, I feel that uh, that was that was a good summary. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. There's a there's a broad spectrum of privacy in modern email services, and you know, on one end we have you know very complex systems that attempt to encrypt all the data. And in some cases, I think even some of the metadata, they try at least. And so that not even the email provider can see it. And then of course, on the other, we have, you know, Google and Yahoo, the ones that everybody uses <laughs> that honestly can explicitly dig through your stuff, looking for things with which to profile you. So in your opinion, you know, for the average user and what's the sweet spot, like, you know, and, and then where does Fastmail fit on that spectrum? Yeah. So yes, there are systems that encrypt everything all the time. And I absolutely recognize that there are some people for whom that is exactly the level of security they need. But I think for most people, that also presents a usability problem, right? Mm -hmm. So if information is encrypted all the time, things you can't do with it include index it for searching, right? And when you talk about email as your kind of digital paper trail, the usefulness of it to you comes from its accessibility to yeah. you. So for me, the sweet spot for most people is accessible to you, not used by anybody else, mm. right? So you want to be able to have good search, right? The difference between good search and bad search, for anyone who's ever used a system that has bad search is really astounding, right? Can I find what I'm looking for? Yeah. The difference between good spam filtering and bad spam filtering, right? The difference between right. lackluster rules and really powerful user rules, especially for power users, right, is, is astounding. And high quality versions of all of those services really depend on being able to scan and index the content of your mail, not just the metadata, right? And it, and it isn't possible for that kind of end-to-end -end encrypted on disk mail. Right. So for me, your email serves you best when it's empowering you. Right. Both by keeping your interactions private, but also enabling you to get the most. Right. But as we just discussed, there's, you know, 
a lot of times there's often two providers involved. So even if I've got Fastmail, let's say, on my end, but I'm talking to somebody who's on Yahoo or Google, at that point, doesn't all the protections of things afforded to me by my, by my choice of a privacy-preserving email service just go out the window? So it goes back to kind of that um, the, the, the full book dossier versus a sketch. Like, yes, it would be ideal if those other providers didn't have that information about you. But by pulling half of it out, right, you're, you're reducing it. So for every one of your correspondents who is choosing a privacy pers- first provider or host their own service or whatever, right, you're reducing that overall visibility, right? If you had 100 correspondents and all of them used the same provider, yes, the value to you might be a lot lower. But as more and more people choose different options, and people always have chosen different options, mm-hmm. right, like it does provide reduced visibility. So far, we've basically focused on corporate surveillance. And uh, I realize that this is a whole different threat model, but certainly we talked about Snowden too. So some people like myself are concerned about, you know, government surveillance and maybe not targeted, but, you know, just kind of the, the blanket warrantless requests for law, from law enforcement or blanket mass surveillance. So from that perspective, how can like a privacy oriented service address those kind of concerns? It's, I realize it's a different aspect, but can they solve the same problem? Absolutely. And on that little teaser note, we will stop and wait. You'll have to wait for next week to get the answer to that question in part two of my interview with Helen. A couple quick notes I was, uh, you know, I wanted to mention while we were, uh, after we've talked about this a little bit, she talked about uh, how companies are not wanting to, or not actually being able to hold on to all the data forever, but that, you know, we may still like access to that data. And it made me think again about, interrupt and what Bruce Schneier and Tim Berners-Lee are doing with the new solid concept and how we, you know, really should be the owners and keepers of our data and just give access to the other people that need it. So anyway, I thought that dovetails nicely with the 200th episode. And again, if you have not heard that, definitely go back and listen to the big 200th podcast episode. There was so much cool stuff in there. There was the interview with Bruce Schneier about, you know, interrupt and all the stuff they're doing with uh, trying to re reinvent the internet. There's also a lot of great tips in there. I kind of build it as a 2021 New Year's resolutions, ideas, podcast, uh, looking for a brighter future and things that you can do to make yourself more secure and guard your data. And we had lots of tips, not just from me, but from uh, several experts from the ind- industry, including Helen, with some you know really concrete ways to uh, improve your privacy, privacy and protect your data. So definitely check that out. Uh, and of course, the big giveaway. I did one for the 100th episode, uh, gosh, almost two years ago, I guess it's been now. Uh, and this one's, this one blows that one out of the water. Uh, I've got so many great contributions at literally eight, over 1800 bucks worth of stuff. If I added it right, it's actually probably more than that. If you add up all the instances of things, uh, there's going to be 10 winners. So, I mean, there's lots of ways to win. Every single winner is going to get a free PDF copy of my book. They're going to get a free one year subscription to Malwarebytes antivirus. Uh, one lucky winner is going to get a Librem five Linux smartphone for the true, truly black helicopter tinfoil hat, privacy security types. That's really darn cool. Uh, there's going to be a Winston privacy box, uh, which basically is a plug-in appliance that, you know, gives privacy to your entire home network. There's a signed hard copy of my book that I'll be giving away. There's a signed hard copy of Cory Doctorow's book, a tax service that I'll be giving away. Uh, there's a really cool four book bundle from a press that I'll be giving away. There's a one year subscription to fast mail. There's uh, some one year subscriptions to proton mail. There's a one year subscription to consumer reports. And, and more. It's crazy. Uh, the amount of stuff that I was given, it was so generous. These people were all so generous. 
and giving away some really cool stuff. So to enter that contest, you can go to bit.ly slash firewalls dash 200, which is bit.ly slash capital F firewalls dash 200. You can also just go to firewallsdontstopdragons.com. You'll see the articles there. And if you find the giveaway article, there's a link right there that uh, you can enter from there as well. There's multiple ways to enter. So in other words, you can enter more than once. You can't do it willy-nilly, but there's, oh gosh, there's probably six, seven different ways you can you can put entries in the box. So there's lots of different ways to kind of stuff the ballot box, giving you more chances to win. Tell your friends and family, spread it on social media. Uh, some of these gifts are actually shareable. You know, get everybody in your household to enter for that Winston privacy box. That's something you'll all be able to use. Uh, next week, we will have part two of my interview with Helen, and we're going to get into some deeper subjects, as you can tell. We're going to talk about, you know, how you deal with, you know, government access to private data. How do you control that? How do you handle that? And some more practical stuff, like let's say, let's say you've decided that you want to switch and get, you know, move to a privacy-centric email provider. How do you, how do you actually do that? Like what's, what's involved with doing that? Is it, is it, <laughs> it is possible, but how hard is it to do? We'll talk about that. And we've got a really cool idea from Helen uh, that we talked about in the 200th episode, but we're going to dig into a little bit more about how you can choose your own email address and have it for the rest of your life and even change email providers behind the scenes and no one will ever be the wiser. So definitely tune in for part two of that interview. A lot of great information coming in that one. And of course, the other reason to tune in next week, assuming you've entered the contest, is next week is uh, next week's episode right before part two. I will be announcing the winners of the contest. So you definitely want to tune in for that. So the contest ends, I guess I should have said this, the contest ends at midnight Eastern time uh, this coming Saturday. So you've got five, six days to, to, to enter. That's not much. Make sure you, and there's lots of ways to enter too and things you can do to enter. So, you know, it might take a little time. So check it out now and so you can figure out and enter all the different ways that are possible to maximize your chances of getting one of these cool prizes. And then things are cut off on Saturday and I will announce the winner on Monday right here in Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons, the podcast. So after that show, we're going to have a new show. We've got plenty to catch up on and including we'll talk a little bit about some of the security implications around the breach of the Capitol building. As you might expect, there's potentially lots of sensitive information in the, in the House and in the Senate in the United States and in the offices of the Congress members. And there's actually what they call a SCIF. Uh, that's S-C-I-F. That stands for Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. It's basically a private room where they can do top secret stuff. And there's one, I think, in the House and one in the Senate. So, you know, were those breached? What does that mean? Some of the laptops were stolen. Anyway, so there, you know, there are actually national security implications of that. We're going to talk about that a little bit, and that'll be in the news show that follows part two of the interview. Along with all the other, you know, privacy and security news that's happened, that I think will also correspond to Data Privacy Day. That happens on January 28th uh, every year. And that, so the news show will be right before that. So we'll probably be focused on that and that show as well. So that'll be a, a big show coming up. And I've got a lot of other really cool interviews coming down the pike too. So um, now, uh, being 2021, starting a new year, and now that I am officially at least semi-retired, I don't have my nine to five job anymore and focused on firewalls, don't stop dragons and all the things around that. I am doing my best to reach more people, increase my audience and provide more value to that audience. Uh, so to that end, uh, I think every year around this time, at the start of the year, I'm going to be doing an annual survey uh, of you guys. I want to know what you guys like about the show and, uh, well, you know what I could make better about the show, what topics we want me to cover, maybe what people you might want me to interview and that sort of thing. So, uh, uh stay tuned for information on that. And, uh, you know, as you know, I have sucked it up and <laughs> I have gone back to Facebook. So, uh, if you're like 2 billion other people on the planet that, that use Facebook, definitely check out my page firewalls. Don't stop dragons on Facebook. Follow me there. 
Uh, I would love to get some follows and likes, and uh, I'm going to be putting out some weekly content there, some weekly tips and some other kind of fun weekly privacy and security information. I'll be posting some articles there, probably maybe things I don't get a chance to cover on the news show here. Uh, I've had a Twitter account for a long time, but the Twitter account tends to be more uh, more technical stuff, where kind of where I interact with the other privacy and security experts and share stuff there. Of course, if you're interested in that, you can follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, look for Firewall Dragons. That's my handle there on Twitter. Uh, but for Facebook, just follow my page, which is the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons page on Facebook. And that would be a great way for you to share some of this information with your friends too. So check that out. All right, one last thing. Uh, I've been asking people, begging people to add reviews on uh, for the book and for the podcast. I really need more of both and some need some fresh ones of both. I lost all my wonderful five-star reviews from the third edition to the fourth edition. They wouldn't let me carry those forward. So I really need some fresh ones. Uh, Amazon and uh, Apple podcasts, both basically revolve around uh, reviews. That's how you get noticed. So please, please, if you have a second, if you like what I'm doing here, please go add a review there. I very, very much appreciate that. It really does make a huge difference. And as you post those as a little incentive, I will pick some out. And as new ones get posted, I will read them here on the air. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Pay attention to when those vaccines are available. Go get them ASAP as soon as they're available for you. Please go get uh, go get vaccinated so we can get past this whole pandemic. And also, you know, stay home as much as possible. Wear that mask every time you go out. Avoid, you know, public gatherings, particularly indoor public gatherings. You know, we're past the holidays now, so, you know, hopefully the temptation for a lot of that has passed. We just have to hang in there a little bit longer and we'll get through this. So... Stay safe, everybody. Take care. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.